You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 176 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. What's been happening in the world of Al? Al? The world of Al has been Alish. now that I think <laughs> about it. Um, I've been doing a bit of authoring, you know. I've been out yes. doing school talks. and No, you've been doing queening. Queening, that's right. Yes. I, yes, I have. I've been, I've been queening. And uh, the queening went very well, so I was really pleased with that. I, I did uh, some school talks um, at Trinity Grammar School in Strathfield for back-to-back uh, workshops, which was uh, pretty exciting. How's this, though? Mm. The grade six that I spoke to there um, – Great, great bunch of kids. But they're participating in a charity event in a few weeks' time um, for the Children's Hospital where they're going to get into groups of five and Mm. they're going to write a book in a day. And they have to write – I know. They have to write – so the five of them have to write – uh, I think it's 2,000 words minimum. Um, mm. They have to write 2,000 words. They have to illustrate it. They have to edit it. They have to bind it, um, you know, print it, bind it, all within, you know, the hours of nine to three. Oh, my goodness. I know. Pressure. Wow. No pressure. And apparently <laughs> the school did it for the first time last year yeah. and um, it was a brilliant exercise. Like they, And um, it's, it's a great way. They, so they raise, they raise money for the hospital through kind of sponsorship and entry fees and various other things that they do. Um, yeah. But the books then also go to the children's hospital. Oh, like they're okay. bound. And yes. the, so the kids there can, you know, can read, you know, books that were written for them by other kids, which I think is oh, really cool. Oh, wow. That's I fantastic. Know. Yeah, so we Jeez. had we had a great chat about um, about how they might go about doing that and the kinds of things they needed to think about, and um, it was pretty funny. I, I think it's going to be utter chaos, frankly. I wish but, I could write a book in a day. Well, that's what I said. You know, like I felt like that that would be a really really good way of going about, you know, being an author. But yes, mm, a bit hard really. But at least Someone... I, I don't have to draw the pictures as well, which would be oh a yes, for everyone. Yeah, how cool. Yeah, really um, cool. Someone once sent me a book to for an assessment, a nonfiction manuscript to assess, and I was, you know, writing all my feedback on it, and I wasn't. It wasn't great. Uh, and so that's a um, lot of feedback, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Red and, pen. Yes. And uh, I said, you know, when did you write this? And he said, on the plane from LA to Sydney. <laughs> and you mm. thought all becomes clear. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, well, they've they I'm sure that the uh the boys in the groups will do an excellent job and I I'm wish sure them all the best. Yes, very exciting. All right, now we have a shout out to Shell Do. 
I'm not sure what that stands for, but Shell Do left us a review on iTunes and has said, I'm a long-time listener to this podcast and absolutely love everyone. Not only do I learn heaps from Val and Al's chatter and always have a few good laughs as they discuss interesting topics and articles, the author interviews always inspire me to keep at my own writing craft. When I eventually publish my YA novel, I will attribute some of my success to this fantastic podcast and the constant inspiration you provide. Thanks, ladies. Oh, there yeah. you go. That's exciting. Yes. Thank you, Sheldu. We really Absolutely. appreciate it. And yeah, best of luck so... with your YA novel. Absolutely. I, hope that, I hope you are working on it regularly and, uh, you know, persisting. That's the yes. best way forward, right? And definitely ping us when when it's published, when it's done. We'd love yes. to know, Sheldu. We would, yes. And if any other listeners have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now, one of the things I've been doing, Al, in the past mm-hmm. week or so has been going to the Sydney Writers' Festival, which, of course, is uh, one of the biggest writers' festivals in the country, possibly in the Southern Hemisphere. It's always great fun, particularly when it's nice weather, and it was glorious. You could not have asked for the most beautiful weather because it's down on the harbour by the wharves, in the wharves, uh, in the Hickson Road area. There are some activities in other places, but it's mainly centred around there. And it is such a glorious location mm. as well. So um, mm-hmm. fortunately, because sometimes it can get a bit rainy in May in Sydney, but mm-hmm. fortunately uh, the weather was on our side and it was absolutely fantastic. And it's such a great place to literally you you just walk 20 metres and you bump into somebody that you know. Yeah. So, it's a great social scene as well because you bump into all of your um, friends and uh, many authors that we've interviewed in the podcast, many authors that we know who also teach at the Australian Writers' Centre. And, um, you know, it's it's exhausting but it's fun. Did you take your snacks with you? Because I remember we were discussing that, you know, the food situation can sometimes be difficult and uh, you were going to take yeah. a bag full of snacks to the I Sydney Writers' Festival. all the right intentions, Al, <laughs> <laughs> and instead I just got hangry a bit. Right, so that would be a no. Yes, because <laughs> if you want food, well, I find if you want food, you have to skip a session. And get the food mm-hmm. when uh, you know when it's the when when the queues are gone, which yes. means everyone's gone into their the session. I found I find that that is the only way um, I could that I could feed myself. Hmm. Disaster. Yes, and disaster. Val when she's hangry is not mm. a pretty sight. I would just like to point mm. out. <laughs> no. Then I got double hangry because, and I did actually skip a session, I guess, because I was double hangry. Because uh, I did, it, all this, almost all of the sessions I went to were just great, you know. They were just really interesting. It was so interesting to listen to the authors and their ideas and, and how they come up with their stories and how they research their stories. I'm particularly interested in in how they research their stories. Uh, and And it was just great to when when you hear a good um, interview or panel, doesn't matter, 
and the right information comes out and and you know that the interviewer or the uh, panelist I mean it's not panel the facilitator is doing a great job when you mm. think of a question and it's like they've got telepathy or something and they ask that question mm-hmm. um, you know that they're doing a good job but I had I did go to um, a couple of sessions that were just that would you know I did well I went to many sessions that were fantastic and one absolute standout which is no surprise because I mentioned last week that I was really keen to listen to Thomas Friedman yes uh, and he spoke at the town hall and he wrote um, thank you for being late and the world is flat and um, flat hot and tired uh, and many other great books and uh, he was interviewed the interviewer you know was prepared and and did a good job but you know sometimes I think some interviews can be almost be over-prepared and and, and, mm. and ask, take too long to ask the questions because they're giving too much backstory of their own reading of the book. And mm. But Thomas managed to, and, and don't get me wrong, the interviewer was, was fine, but Thomas was such a master that I suggest that any author who wants to know how to present, who wants to know how to own the room, who mm. wants to know how to leave people wanting more and wanting to buy every book you, he's ever read, I mean, has ever written, they should listen to the way Thomas Friedman presents. Really? And it's no surprise. As it turns out, I happen to know yes. uh, somebody who um, wanted to hire. He, oh, actually, I probably shouldn't say this. Oh, oh no. Well, I've, I've you, started now. <gasps> I started now. Oh, dear. Well, who, who wanted to – don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. To, <laughs> <laughs> right. Who wanted to hire him for to, to speak at something mm. and um, you, <laughs> you would not believe his fee. <laughs> oh, really? Yes, there are so many digits in it. Oh, would it's, I be sad and jealous if you told me the it's, fee? It's astounding. But you know what? Uh, that's because he's such a pro. And okay. he can he can he can literally own that room in a very um engaging way, in, in a way that's not, you know, arrogant or or, or show too showman like or anything, just because of incredible presentation and ideas. Um, anyway, I, okay. I, I I digress. Clearly I'm a fangirl. Okay. Clearly, clearly you are a fangirl. But it's quite I'll cute go back to, to see you fangirl in fact. <laughs> I'll go back to why uh, I got double hangry. Mm-hmm. Well, I was hangry and then I was angry. Uh, and that's because I did go to a session which was not ideal mm-hmm. where the um, interviewer had not prepared at all, where her the questions were banal, um, mm-hmm. where literally as we filed out of the, you know, uh, of the very large auditorium, everyone was not backward in coming forward. They were all rolling their eyes. They were all appalled at the... <sighs> Terrible interviewing uh, of the interviewer, who I will not mention. And it was just so frustrating and that it actually put me in such a bad mood, it made me skip the next session. Oh, dear. (laughs) So I did get food (laughs) as a result of that. Because you were hangry and angry, you went and got food. It's disappointing though, isn't it? And I think it's, um, you know, I think it just comes down to that whole thing we talk about. You know, interviewing is a real skill. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of thought about 
not just not just preparation in the sense of you know actually read the books would be good yes. but from the perspective of what what you want to come out of the interview and what yes. kind of experience you want the audience to have what you think the audience wants to know I think that's yes. the other thing to really keep in mind and also to remember I guess and this is true whether you're writing a feature or whether you're you know interviewing is that it's um it's not about you Mm. I think that's probably a really important thing and you often or you know you can see it go horribly wrong because the interviewer is you know busy trying so busy trying to be dazzling that they forget yes. that people are actually there to see the interviewee and not them. Absolutely. And a great lesson to authors though is mm. to be prepared in case you are interviewed by a, a terrible interviewer. Yes. Is to actually figure out techniques to still give the audience what they want so the audience feels great uh, and, and to not necessarily just sit there passively and just answer questions. Sometimes no, that comes down, I guess, to the, the other things we've talked about because I remember a few episodes ago we talked about how to be interviewed and yes. I think it's it's that whole thing of, of as an author – you need to go into an interview knowing what it is that you want to come out of it as well, knowing yep. what it is that you want to say and understanding your audience. And, and because, you know, the audience that's there, particularly in a circumstances like that, it's at, um, at a writer's festival like that, if the audience has come to that session, the chances are that they are, particularly if it's just you being interviewed, they're mm. there to see you. So yes. you have to think about giving your audience what they want and need so that they leave the session with a great impression, uh, you know, because you want people to walk out feeling good, good. about exactly. things, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. And I think it boils down to stories. I think you need stories at the ready. Uh, mm. I think one, Thomas Friedman was asked all sorts of different questions from, you know, not only the audience but obviously the interviewer and he always had a story ready to go for right. each one of those questions. And and it's it, I think that's important because, like I said, it's, it's, it's so much better to be proactive rather than just be reactive to answer sometimes very banal questions. Mm. Anyway, mm. let us mm. move on. So, yes, Let's. good, all good fun and now it's vivid, you know, um, in Sydney. Sydney's going through a very, very exciting period at the mm. moment. First the Sydney Writers' Festival, now the Vivid Festival, which over the last few years seems to have evolved into this wonderful series of workshops and talks and obviously beautiful lights and stuff, which is what how Vivid started, the, the whole city being lit up. But now it's lots of... Um, uh, talks and workshops on um, incredibly interesting ideas, R- reminiscent of, um, you know, the, the the big South by Southwest conference that's on mm. in Austin, Texas every year. Uh, I think that Sydney is really doing a great job at, in Vivid. Are you, uh, you know, hopefully people go to some of the sessions. I've been to mm. one so far, um, uh, which was the CEO and founder of BuzzFeed, and uh, Jonah Peretti talking about how and why he founded BuzzFeed and his whole, you know, thought process behind it. It's not just a series of cute cat videos or cute <laughs> cat lists. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> I know, hard to believe, right? Hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, thought and algorithms and philosophy even behind it. So that was an interesting session. But, mm. yes, lots more to go with Vivid. Terrific. Okay, so let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week. Mm -hmm. I have a link for you 
And okay. it's from a website called The Hairpin and it's by a writer called Zan Romanoff. And I, it caught my eye because the post is how I wrote my novel in Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, right, and, and my first response to that is why, but yeah, okay. Exactly. Well, it's similar to, you may remember when we spoke to um, one of our previous authors who wrote uh, Hester and Harriet uh, and she spoke about how she uh, initially wrote it because her friend said, go on, write me, write something, send them to me, you know, send me your first chapter, then send me your next chapter and so on. So effectively she started writing her novel because somebody wanted to read it and she just emailed them chapters every so often. Right. Well, this okay. is a similar thing. This mm. writer, Zan, had a friend called Logan who was interested because she once mentioned to Logan uh, that someone should write a young adult novel about a teen girl fan turned defect de- detective. <laughs> right. And Logan said, I'd like to write that. And so... Over the a, a certain period of time, Zan wrote this story and emailed Logan over 200 emails. Wow. Yes, because she loved the idea that Logan was waiting for the next part of the story mm-hmm. and was hanging for Logan and, and knew that Logan was waiting for it, so she had to deliver, and also was hanging for that response from Logan, you know, I can't wait to read the, to read the next, you know, p- part of the story. Mm. And that became a book called Grace Fantastic. and the Fever. Yeah. So well, whatever just, it takes, you know, right? That's one person accountability, isn't it? Like if you yes. know you've got a reader waiting, then, yes. you know, then you are going to finish the book. And it's a great way of doing it too because, you know, lots of people will put it up on Wattpad or something like that in, you know, mm. to get that feedback, to have that notion that people are waiting. But once you've done that, it's it's out there. Whereas mm. if it's just one person on Gmail, you know, it's still, you know, essentially in the cone, publishers are still going to be interested. So I think it's – um. I think it's a great idea. Absolutely. Find that one person who wants to read your story. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let's move on to another post. It's from the Right to Done uh, website and it's called Warning. Are you at risk of a story collapse? Uh. Now, this is it, Interesting because this does happen to some people. It says, show of hands, has this ever happened to you? You are jamming away at your latest story. Words are flowing. Characters come to life. The realm you've created is awesome and infinite. You could live here for the rest of your creative life. And then it all stops. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes. You're just stuck, right? (laughs) Like the article says, characters stare at one another. Mute waiting for someone to speak. Mm. (laughs) Army stand idle on the hillside. Lovers wait by the phone. (laughs) So your story has stalled. And sometimes you don't know why and Mm. you just know that it's stalled. So uh, one of the things that this article is saying, um, and it's by someone called Dale Kutzera, uh, is that um, more accurately the problem is your lack of story. Because stories stall yes. because you actually don't have a story. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's very so, true. It, it it asks a few obvious questions initially, like who is your hero? What's your hero's goal? What stands in your hero's way? And those are essential. If you don't even know that, your story is definitely not going to go anywhere at all. Yeah. But then it talks about an inter- it asks an interesting question: What is your death moment? 
Death uh. as in D-E-A-T-H, death moment. And, uh, you know, the, this is um, termed various things, but here they've called it a death moment. And um, Dale says that every story can benefit from a death moment. And in screenwriting, this is the point at the end of Act 2 where the hero's entire effort collapses yes. or the lovers fight and break up or the warrior is defeated or the murderer gets away. So Dale is saying that knowing how your hero's efforts fail at the end of Act 2 can help define their plans uh, at the beginning of Act 2. So you need uh. to actually think of that death moment or, or if you're stuck, try and think of what that death moment is because then that then you have something to work towards and somewhere for your hero to go and your story to go and somewhere, somewhere uh, the actions that will happen afterwards. So yeah. I think that that can be useful. What do you think? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think you need to you need to have an understanding of. I mean, it's, it comes down to the your understanding of story structure, but it also I think comes down to like I had two of these moments when I was writing the second really? book of the Mad Mega Chronicles, Ma- mm-hmm. the middle of the first trilogy, and I think the middle of everything is always the hardest, which is why yes. your story is going to die. If it's ever going to die, it'll be in Act Two, mm-hmm. um, and part of the problem with both of those things was that. Um, I had for various reasons put my hero into incredibly difficult situations and they they made a lot of sense and the reasons that they happened all made sense and stuff like that. But the story stalled because I couldn't figure out how to get the hero out of these, you know, yes. incredibly difficult moments. Because some, So sometimes you can write yourself into a corner without yes. even realising it and it's all working beautifully um, and it all makes perfect sense and it's fantastic but you know, you've you've um, like in the first instance in book two, Quinn was down a hole, and he yeah. spent a long time down a hole because I couldn't work out how to get him out of the hole. Like it took yeah. a long time. I mean, literally in a hole. Um, yes. And then the second part of that of that very difficult book was he was on a ship by himself, um, and I couldn't. I had to get him off it, and he was in the middle of the ocean. And how was I going to get him off this ship and, you know, you know, into a position where he could actually be, um, you know, save himself, be rescued, whatever, get the, get the team back, get the gang back together. You know, how was I going to do that when he was on a ship in the middle of the ocean by himself? So it becomes, um, it becomes a real uh, logical puzzle. You know, you've actually got to work your way logically through every possible option that you can think of mm-hmm. um, to come up with an answer. And it's um, that can take some time. So sometimes, you know, when your story stalls, it's not really because, you know, every, it might be stalling because everything's actually going right for you in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but you have to work through the puzzle to come up with the solution as to how, how you're going to get yourself you- out of it. How did you get yourself out of it in those situations when you were faced with that situation? Well, uh, the first one took some serious – in both instances, it took a lot of walking and thinking because (laughs) it is, is, you know, it's a – you're looking for a logical solution to something and um, sometimes that doesn't necessarily come quickly. But when the moment does come, it's just like, Oh, of course. Yeah, Why yeah. Didn't I think of that before? You know, um, and in the second instance with the ship and everything, it took some serious logistical acrobatics and some, you know, it took 
and some rewriting. Let's face it, it took some rewriting. Um, So, you know, you may not necessarily come up with the perfect solution the first time around and sometimes it's a matter of just uh, just writing your way through it, Um, Mm. write your way through that bit, get on to the next bit where you do know what's going to happen and then when you actually come back to do the edit – then you, you've really got to seriously look at, is this actually going to make sense? Where does he need to be? If he's up a pole, how is he going to get down from that pole? You know, mm. like, that kind I of can stuff. imagine you walking and thinking and being so consumed by this. And I'm reminded of when you went into a shop, like the post oh, office yes. or something. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's exactly what happens. I am muttering away to myself constantly. And, I'll, oh, that's and not what did the work. post office, like you, you, you got first into the counter and then you were still so busy thinking you said something to the post I office lady. Asked me what, I was, it was actually at the milkshake shop and she asked me what I wanted and I answered as though, like I just, it was basically I just blurted out whatever was in my mind at the time and she just looked at me like it had nothing to do it was all to do with what was going on in my head she just looked at me like yeah uh-huh. <laughs> sorry um but yeah it, it is incredibly consuming and I'm also doing you know I'm doing things like I'm it, you know in this one particular scene where I've did manage to get him off the ship. You know, I'm doing this thing of like I've got him, he's at the top of a mast, he's got a rope in his hand and he's like he's got a swing from one ship to the other. And I'm so I'm sort of like I'm walking around with my hands in the air sort of like imagining him doing this and is that going to work and where? how far up the mast does he need to be for that to actually swing to work without hitting the rail, you know, blah, blah. I mean, honestly, it's it's a real, yeah, you don't think about the, you don't think about that aspect of writing when you sort of first start out, but the mm. coming up with solutions to problems, you are mm. constantly problem solving um, all the time. Every decision leads to another problem and then you've got to work your way through that problem. And so, you know, there's a lot of intense thinking going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to come up with an gone. effortless adventure. <laughs> You should have gone to Jamboree and swung from some kind of great height oh, just to experience it yourself. Probably should, but that would have hurt me badly. I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So anyway, we will put the link uh, to that story in the show notes, which of course you can find at so you want to be a writer dot com dot au. Now another link we're going to put in the show notes is a blog post that I wrote. Hooray. Uh, yes, and um, uh, and it's very it's a very comprehensive blog post. So if you are interested in it, then do check it out at so you want to be a writer dot com dot au. Now I get asked a lot how people can get into corporate writing because it is a very lucrative form of writing and some people use corporate writing as their bread and butter while they then do their love projects and their love projects might be writing fiction or they might be writing articles for their favourite magazines but where how they pay their mortgage is through corporate writing. Hmm. And so I put a lot of thought into this and really spelt it out. Mm. And this post goes into, well, what is corporate writing? So that's, you know, it might be marketing materials, might be newsletters, case studies, annual reports, um, uh, just blog posts for companies um, and, and that sort of thing. But uh, how you can get work as a corporate writer, there's a few things Um, And there's no way I can go through the entire blog post on this podcast, so do read it if you have a chance. But number one is do the words corporate writer actually feature in your bio or Mm. your LinkedIn profile or, you know, does it just say freelance writer or does it it say, you know, 
mother of two and coffee lover and addicted to House of Cards, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and cats. And cats. Or does it say corporate writer? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, are you networking? Now, some people might think that's a dirty word and can't stand the um, idea of networking or going to networking events and handing out business cards, but that is the wrong idea of networking. Networking is simply talking about what you do to whoever. It might be at the school gate. And I know so many people who have got jobs from the school gate. Mm. And I will never get a job from the school gate because I don't have kids. You but don't hang out at the school gate. It would be weird if you hung out at the school yes. gate. <laughs> but uh, a friend of mine got a um, incredible, we're talking incredible, like if you understood the salary level of this, it's, it's, just, a, it's, it's, just, a, it's just too mind-boggling for words, at the school gate. Mm. At the school gate. So, you know, it's just talking about not being afraid to talk about what you do wherever. It doesn't have to be at the school gate. It can be, you know, at the local bookshop. It can be at your gym. It can be whatever. Uh, and so I think that there are a couple of important things. And and for those people who are used to freelance writing and are used to a more journalistic approach to things, I, I strongly recommend that you read this article that you just so you understand the nuances between approaching something from a journalistic point of view and, a, and, and approaching it with journalistic skills, but bearing in mind that you have a client. So another guy I know with a very seasoned journalist got an incredible gig at um, one of Australia's major banks. And um, he and, and they employed him because of his journalistic skills and because of the rigour that he would um, apply to the stuff that he uh, researched and wrote. And he did apply that rigour but kind of forgot that he had a client, as in his oh. company. Uh-oh. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and kind of didn't think of the bigger picture. Mm. Unfortunately... He then, after a while, he no longer had a gig there because oh. you always need to bear in mind that your boss or your client is the company and mm. that you don't necessarily approach things with the same view as if you were a completely objective, independent journalist. But you're not working as a completely independent ind- independent journalist if you're doing corporate writing, right? No, it's, that's it's, right. It's, you're it's employed totally by the corporation. Exactly. Yeah, you're not. <laughs> You're not, even if you did come from the Australian or the Sydney Morning Herald, you now have a different um, mandate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's something that I think has a lot of opportunity, especially these days with companies really understanding the need to create content and mm-hmm. to um, employ good writers to do so. Because sometimes people who are great at the messaging aren't necessarily great at the writing. And mm-hmm. so they will be head of communications or they'll be, you know, the marketing manager, but they still need to employ writers to do to put the actual words on paper. So if you are interested in corporate writing, have a look at the post. Uh, and it's something that, yeah, can definitely add quite a few dollars to your bank account if, Absolutely. if, if you need to. All right. So let us move on. You have a link for us. I do have a link. In the spirit of, um, I, I realise I've been remiss, in the spirit of actually letting people know what you do, <laughs> I thought I should probably mention that um, the Mapmaker Chronicle series comes out in the US this week. Oh, wow. 
I know. I'm so hopeless. I've just remembered. And I thought I'd better actually say something about this. So in the spirit of talking about what you do, um, I just thought I would let our US listeners know, and I'm waving Mm. to you from Australia here, that the Mm. Mapmaker Chronicle series is available in the US through Kane Miller Books as of June 1. And um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes uh, to the publisher website. The best way to actually track it down at this stage is probably just to buy it directly through the publisher. So um, I'll pop a link in the show notes to that. You can read a little bit more about the books and um, see the covers and, you know, hopefully you'll be as excited about this as I am, even though I almost forgot to mention it. (laughs) Yes, that is so cool. Oh, my goodness. I know. Wow. It's day, really? I know, really. Yes. I know I should have started with that up front, really, shouldn't I, rather than talking about writing a book in a day. But anyway, here we are. We've made that's it. That's so exciting. And you are uh, – so that's out in the US and you've yes. been busy um, because when is the Ataban Cypher coming out, which is, of course, is the next exciting series that oh, you're launching. When's that coming out in first Australia? In Australia, the first book comes out on the 13th of September. So I'm hoping that I will have a cover to share very soon. I've seen the, I've seen the mock-ups. I've seen the, you know, the work in progress and it's pretty exciting. It looks really, really brilliant. So I'm very, very excited. Um, So yeah, so I'm having a, I'm having a very, very big year in a big big. way. Um, But tell us some... T- t- tell us just briefly for people who are new to it, just the sum- what's the Ataban Cipher about? Uh, the Ataban Cipher is uh, it's a two-book series at this stage and it, the first book is called The Book of Secrets and it is the story of uh, Gabe who has grown up in a monastery his entire life um, and Gabe is handed under some very difficult circumstances a book, um, a very special book, and he is told he must flee the monastery with it and hide it. Um, mm. And this is a book that um, everybody knows is incredibly valuable but nobody can read it because the book, which is a medieval manuscript, is all written in code. And so Gabe flees the, flees the monastery with his book and in the forest runs into four very cool girls and they have to save the book, save Gabe, save everybody. And, um, and the story, this great adventure unfolds from there. I love it. And, of yeah, course, very- I love – You've really inspired me. You and and the um, person who is a writer in residence this episode really inspired me because uh, when you started talking about the Adamant Cipher and how it's about this uh, medieval manuscript and it's written in code, I started thinking because I used to be really into codes when I was little, when I was younger. And um, as some people who may follow me on Instagram will know that I've got this um, new thing where I'm experimenting with lots of different types of art and the next even and I'm obsessed at the moment with rope art (laughs) macrame (laughs) and and weaving but the next thing I'm embarking on is I'm creating a piece of art out of wood Mm. I know a bit different Mm. but my point is I'm going to embed a code in it (gasps) Ooh, yeah. I'm excited. That's exciting. I know. I'm excited. I'm so excited. Yeah. Because I think I'm so clever. <laughs> Clearly, she's having a moment here, everyone. Just take a deep breath while Val has her moment. I'm looking forward to seeing the code in yes. your work. 
Yes, in in this piece of art, there's going to be a code embedded in it, and I'll have to think of some kind of prize or something if anyone can crack it. Anyway, <laughs> okay, let's let's wait till it's done before we do that. Yeah, we'll wait till it's done. Yeah, <laughs> um, I have to master a jigsaw. Saw like oh, you call yes. it, do you call it a jigsaw saw or a jigsaw? No, you just call it a jigsaw. Okay, I have to it's master just... a jigsaw and like other wood related things but I digress I'll, I'll update you on that when uh, when more of it is done now continuing on with the theme of a code we have an awesome giveaway this week because it, it's a, a series of six books by our writer in residence this mm. episode mm. this is so cool we have all six books to give away in the Ruby Redford series by Lauren Child which is so, favourite with so many people I know. Massive favourite and you can win all six. If you don't know Ruby Redford, she is a genius code cracker, a daring detective and a gadget-laden special agent. She and her slick sidekick butler hitch foil crimes and get into loads of scrapes with evil villains, but they're always ice cool in a crisis. Now... We'll find out more about Ruby when we chat to Lauren Child. But if you want to win all six books, you get to win all six, then go to writerscentercomau slash win. Entries close on the 5th of June. But don't worry, if you uh, come to that URL in the future, there'll be some other great competition for you to enter. So the Ruby Redford series by Lauren Child, writerscentercomau slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. All right, are we ready for the word of the week, Al? So ready, Val. I love this word. I've loved this word for quite a while. Nomenclature. Mm. Nomenclature, that's N for Nelly, O-M for Mary, E-N for Nelly, C-L-A-T-U-R-E, nomenclature. So it's kind of long and many people will use it. I know that you use this, Uh, but I love this word and I actually use it all the time, bizarrely. Do you? Yes. You use (laughs) it all the time. I would use it on a weekly basis for sure. On a weekly basis? Yeah, for sure. Yes, yes. Okay. I I can honestly say I don't know that I've ever used it. No. No. I don't think I've ever even written it. I know what it is, but I don't think I've I'm, – because I'm looking at it on the spreadsheet, people. But I, I have – I've never used it in my life. But anyway, I'm fascinated by the fact that you use it on a weekly basis. Oh, now, yes. Wow. Okay. Well, I'll, well first, I'll first define it. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, it is a set of, of system – oh, sorry, a set or system of names or terms – 
as those used in a particular science or art by an individual or community. So basically, it's just a naming system, in other words. Mm. So you might say something like, make sure you use the right nomenclature when you're naming all the files on the server. So I would use it on a, on a weekly basis because we do have files on the server <laughs> in the office. So I would say, yes, we've got to make sure we have the right nomenclature as in a cons- or make sure we have a consistent nomenclature because I'm into photography and I sort through a lot of photos and, you know, in a previous life was a photo editor, you need to have a really good f- naming system. Uh, for your photos. So I talk about the nomenclature of that. Um, when we have our photo library now and we divide them out by keywords so it's an easy way to search for different um, photos, you need to write have the right nomenclature for that. Mm. When I look at, you know, okay, cafe I menus. Get the point. I think we're across <laughs> this now. Val uses nomenclature a lot, everyone. <laughs> I would like to know if any of you people out there in podcast land – Use nomenclature on a regular basis. Yeah, or even at all. Let us know. If ever. Mm, exactly. <laughs> right, right, let's move on. We've been let's, rabbiting a lot. Yes, yes. So move on to our writer in residence who, of course, is the incredible Lauren Child. Now, mm. Lauren has, oh, I mean, her achievements are just too 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 many to list but she uh, is best known for her Charlie and Lola picture books and Yay. of course yes very very popular and of course her Clarice Clarice, Clarice Bean uh, picture books and novels which mm. is where Ruby the red Ruby Redford series came from because mm. uh, the 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 character in that series of novels used to um, uh, want to read about read this book where the character was Ruby Redford. Oh, there and, you go. Yeah, and it was quite funny because so many children around the world would go to would either email Lauren or go to their local library and ask for these books about Ruby Redford, which of course did not exist because they were fictitious. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but. but uh, as a result, Lauren had already ra- made audience very keen to read about Rudy, Ruby Redford. Genius. Um, yeah, absolute genius. But uh, I'll let Lauren talk about uh, her journey herself. This was a great interview. Well, I thought it was a great interview. I really enjoyed <laughs> Go, talking. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I really enjoyed talking to Lauren. Uh, so I hope you enjoy listening to it. So, Lauren, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) Now, you've written picture books as well as novels, but let's just start with your most recent book, which is the sixth book in the Ruby Redford series, Blink and You Mm -hmm. Die. For those readers who haven't read the book yet or the series yet, can you tell us what it's about? Um, Yes, there are. Uh, which one? All of the whole series, you mean? Yes, the, maybe just a little snapshot of the series, and then specifically, the yeah, think the of final that. one. Mm. Okay. Um, well, they're about a thirteen-year-old American school kid who, who is very, very bright and brilliant at creating codes and decoding codes, and she gets recruited by this secret agency who 
live underneath the city or have their offices underneath the city of Twinford where this this child lives. And it all has to be completely secret. No one is to know um, about this life that she's leading. She's leading this double life. And um, so it's a lot uh, about how she keeps that secret and how she has to carry on going to school and she has to carry on um, hanging out with her friends and doing all the normal sort of things that you would do Mm. and yet has has this sort of life and death um, sort of job going on. (laughs) So a job that involves, you know, really ridiculous things like, you know, walking up a skyscraper and you know investigating all of these things and doing kung fu and parkour and so there's a very sort of silly and exaggerated side to it but hopefully it does keep you on the edge of your seat and then there's always codes in it that you you can decode if you're if you're if you've got the the wherewithal to do it Yes. Now, you first started writing about the character Ruby Redford some years ago, uh, before mm-hmm. the series started, in fact. So can you tell us mm. how that evolved and how she ended up with her own hugely successful series? Yes. What happened was, I was, I was I'd written uh, Clarice Bean as picture book and then they were getting sort of longer and longer, these picture books. And my editor suggested that I write um, fiction. So I started writing um, a Clarice Bean book called Ashley Me. And Clarice Bean is a sort of, um, she's a child who thinks in a very particular way. And so they're all written in her sort of stream of consciousness you know so she can ramble on about all kinds of things and so they're lovely to write but I needed something to sort of underpin Clarice and so I brought in this device of having her compare her reality with this seemingly much more exciting fictional world Mm -hmm. and I decided to make it as ridiculous as possible (laughs) Um, so I wanted to write about something that was her teacher might think was totally pointless in terms of value of reading mm. um, because we have this debate going on it's always going on in the UK about what is what is worth reading what isn't worth reading mm-hmm. and it always frustrates me because I sort of think any book that you enjoy reading is worth reading. Mm. And so I wanted Clarice Bean to be reading this series that her teacher very much disapproves of, um, that actually she is able to prove the worth of it and why this book is so brilliant and what it can teach you. So that's really where Ruby came from. And it was written in this, as I say, very exaggerated sort of adventure sort of style. And then what happened was I started getting letters from Clarice Bean readers saying, um, are these Ruby Redfoot books real? Is it a real (laughs) series? And then we got a letter from this librarian in Kentucky (laughs) 
in the U.S. saying, you know, this child keeps coming in and asking if she can get a copy of the Ruby Redport book <laughs> and does it actually exist? And so my publisher and I thought, oh, that'd be a really good thing to make them real because there's something mm. rather exciting about the idea of a, a fiction in a fiction and then you make that real so you can actually read what Clarice is reading. So that's really how it all came about. Wow. And she sounds like she has such a cracking good time. Do you... Do you also, do you kind of really, do you kind of live vicariously through Ruby the things that you wish you would have done when you were 13? Um, yeah, I think I think it's a book that I would have very much enjoyed reading, which mm. isn't really surprising because I think probably every writer, you know, you're, you're writing something that you really feel strongly about and you want to mm. explore as an idea. And... Yeah, and I think she's a, a character that, like Clarice, I would aspire to be, and I wish I could do all the things she does. And you, in the Ruby Redford series, there's a lot of code cracking involved, which you've mentioned. Now, how did yeah. that come about? Is that something your interest, your, like how did writing about that or including that come about? Is that no. something you're interested in personally? or And what did you have to do to get the codes right, you know, make sure that the codes worked and stuff? Mm. Well, um, first of all, it happened It happened because I'd sort of written myself into a corner um, when I was writing the Ruby extract in Clara's Bean and nothing had to make any sense. And mm. I would just say how amazing this child was and that she could crack code and make code. <laughs> and I could write anything because none of it had to join up. Mm. Um but then when I was writing the fiction, I realized they needed to be very convincing and very good. And I, I love thriller and crime as a genre anyway. And so I wanted the books to really work and be quite compelling and taxing as well to, to understand. Mm. And you really have to... Um, concentrate on what Ruby's talking about in order to decode things. And I wanted it, you know, to be fiendishly difficult because if they're not, then you would say, well, is she really that clever? <laughs> and so I, I spoke to this maths professor. I mean, he's really the most brilliant man called Marcus de Soto. And, and, and I asked him if he would write the codes for me because I wanted them to be really interesting as well and um, and they and they all had to work in different ways because they're all based on the different senses mm. and so he's the one who wrote them and I am interested I'm very interested in codes I, not that I'm I'm I have any kind of um, ability to decipher them but I I think it's something that a lot of us are, are fascinated with because mm. it's all about secrets and messages and puzzles. And also that we, there's been so much talk about the Enigma code, mm. um, particularly recently, um, because with all the, the, the anniversary of the um, Second World War and things. So it's really, it's, you know, it's really been very much... Um, in our news, and I think children get fascinated um, 
in what's going on, you know, in the in the world now. And then you can look back and you can see how powerful codes were in history. Hmm. It's um uh and it's and certainly it's a lot of fun. Did you uh it was kind of handy that you knew like a code making pr- professor of mathematics in your life in order to be well, able I didn't to do know this. him. That was Oh, you didn't. I didn't know him at all. No. Mm-hmm. It's just that he's on television. I mean, he's 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 brilliant um on the radio and on TV back home. And he what I did know about him is he's very interested in explaining maths to children and um, um, communicating with children and taking that sort of barrier or sort of fear away from them. And so I knew that there was a good chance he might um, take part in this. And it was my publisher who who sort of, she didn't know him, but he I think he works with Fourth Estate, I think. So I think there was some connection and so you also illustrate some books. Did you start off as a writer or illustrator? Uh, I really, I started off, I suppose, really naturally I was an illustrator mm-hmm. and I learned to write because it was very hard to get any, any illustration work without generating something as well. Um, I think it's quite a hard thing to break into illustration because people have their sort of pet people that they like working with or, you know, and, and it's, you know, I can understand that because it's a big leap for a writer mm. um, to take a chance on a new illustrator. Um, so I, 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 I suppose that's why I started doing my own books. And then I find it easier actually illustrating my own work, which is, I've had a chance to sit with it and I know what things are going to look like. Whereas if, if you take on someone else's book, mm. um, I, you, know, you know, you have to work your way into their mind. Mm. So you've got the successful Ruby Redford series and which was born out of Clarice Bean. And prior to that, you had the phenomenally successful picture books, the Charlie and Lola picture books, which were not only, you know, bestsellers, but also made into television. Mm. Now, picture books Mm. are often considered by people as fairly simple kind of things. What do you think, though? But I think they're anything but simple for a, for a mm. for one that really works. That is, uh, mm. what do you think are the essential elements of a picture book um, for it to work? I suppose, yeah, I suppose if I look at the picture books that I love, then they often they often have a depth to them that you might not consciously realize is there. Mm. So, you know, I can think of a lot of books, like a book like um, Not Now, Bernard, by David McKee, which is really, it's it's deceptively simple. Mm. It's very, very funny, and it's all about a boy telling his, parents trying to explain to his parents that there's a monster I think it's in the garden or something and he keeps telling them they keep being too busy and saying oh just you know go off and play and then and then finally the monster eats Bernard and um 
and still the parents don't notice. And instead of, um, there's no more Bernard, so they tell the monster that it's time for bed. And, and the, in the last picture, I think, is the monster sitting in bed in his pyjamas, <laughs> in Bernard's pyjamas. And I love that because actually it's a very, very funny story and it, it's very appealing for children and adults. But it's also saying the way adults, you know, sometimes just don't take enough notice of what children are trying to tell them. Mm. And they think they know best and... And um, they don't always know best. And I, I love that book because it's on the child's side. Mm. And I think there are, you know, there are so many, you know, books like that. I think I, another one is, um, well, John Birmingham's books. I think are absolutely brilliant. And um, and you know, a book like Grandpa, which is talking about the death of a grandparent mm. and the way it explains it really beautifully mm. um, and understand and lets the child sit with that um, problem rather than sort of be overly cheerful so mm. it, you know it and I think we we're always sort of avoiding saying things to children which is way more frightening than actually explaining things properly mm. so um, I think that that book explored grief and loss really beautifully. Mm. When you're writing novel-length kind of things, like the Ruby Redford series, Mm -hmm. um, uh, how do you approach that? Can you just give us a little bit of an overview of your creative process in the sense that do you set aside a certain time of day that's dedicated to writing? Do you try to achieve a certain number of words or hours or anything like that? Is it a set five days a week just how does that actually look on a practical level like your daily writing Mm. routine um I wish I could say I have one I (laughs) um I I know all these these writers you know like Stephen King who seems to get up write his 2,000 words or however many words he writes and and then finishes by lunchtime and goes for a walk or and and I I, I wish I was like that. I'm I'm not, I'm just not like that. And I think it's partly because there are so many other things that I have to do. And so I tend to work every day. Um, um, and certainly writing a novel, because those novels are very, very long, I work as many days as I can. But then there are other things that you have to do um, answer emails, do promotion, um, you know, all, all the sort of domestic things you have to do as well, collect your daughter from school. Mm-hmm. And so I I don't have a sort of set, very um, rigid um, schedule of work. I just work when I can work. And what I did find writing Ruby is as I would get towards the end of a book, I'd work through the night because that allowed me to work without wretched emails and telephone calls and things coming in. Because even if you don't answer them, even mm. if you don't look at them, you know they're there. And I find it very, very distracting. And I would love it if I didn't have to get involved with those sort of things. But I do, <laughs> because, you know, a publisher will send you, say, a piece of, you know, a blurb for a catalogue and you have to approve it. <laughs> and so you're constantly stopping and starting 
and um, so I've yet to find the best possible way of working and certainly haven't achieved achieved <laughs> that um, but sometimes I go away and um, I sort of book myself into a hotel for a few days uh, okay. so you can contact me Yes, but what I'd love to get an, a sense of is when you're writing, you know, long novels versus when mm-hmm. you're writing much, 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 much shorter picture books, mm-hmm. I'd just love to get a sense of the different way you approach it. Like obviously you, nef- you, have, mm-hmm. it, it, obviously you have to complete so many more words with a yep. novel and, and do you plan it out like, okay, I've got to finish this in three months and I'm going to achieve – these sorts of milestones or how do they compare because there's such different um, requirements? Um, I suppose with the pitch book stories, I don't write them in one go and I don't sit down and try and write a whole story. I write the first bit of it. So if I have an idea for it, I'll jot it down. And then I might keep revisiting it. And sometimes they're revisited over a number of years. And and then finally I know what I'm trying to say. So they get edited and edited and edited by me. And sometimes they they change course as well. So I think it's going to be about one thing. Mm. And then it's not. It's about something completely different. And sometimes I might... I think it was with the Hubert Horatio story... I just couldn't quite think how to end it. And I remember reading it to a friend of mine because I was just, I was really stuck. And sometimes reading them out loud is really helpful. And he happened to be there and he just came up with this really good idea that it, that I needed to sort of bookend it with the child coming in with um, his, his cocoa and how it was still hot at the end and and it was just him saying that just completed the book and so often they are written in that way that that they it can go for years and years mm. without me finding an ending or a point mm. to it with the with the novels they, it's very different because they are all contracted yes so, um you have no choice. I don't have that freedom <laughs> or luxury. They have to be written within mm. a year. And probably it's very lucky because otherwise I don't probably I'd be on book two of Ruby Redford because <laughs> there's always a better idea and they're really hard to do and so I'd probably walk away from it. Um but it's it there you're you're right when when you say do you um you know figure out how many words you have to write in order to complete it. It's terrifying when you get to the last three months and you realise, oh, I've still got 20,000 words to write. (laughs) And that's terrifying because then you do the sort of sum in your head of how many words you're going to need to write per day. Mm. And given that there are some days where you erase absolutely everything you've written because it's not good enough, Mm. you know, that really... It puts pressure on you, but I think it's probably the pressure that helps me get it done. Mm-hmm. With the novels, do you, especially with something like uh, a thirteen-year-old girl who's doing these, you know, exciting adventures mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, and she's contracted by an agency. With them, do you have a plot? 
before you get to the end? Have you already plotted it out? Do you know what's going to happen? Because, you know, you've got to involve all these codes and stuff like that. Or do mm. you let things unfold as you write? I let things unfold. I, I, really? I, 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 yep. I usually, well, I think I always wrote the prologue piece. So I always had a sort of back in time piece and that's just mm. set the scene for me mm. and I would know what kind of code it was going to be not how a code would work but I knew is it going to be a smell code or is it going to be a taste code mm. so I decided that and I jotted down perhaps a few things that I might be interested in so I remember doing the poison book and I remember thinking oh I want to use snakes because I'd done lots and lots of research on snakes for an earlier book and I was really interested in it mm-hmm. um, and I thought oh, actually they'll work I took them out of the second book or the third book because I thought oh yeah they're going to be really nice to use in the the book about poison mm-hmm. and that had a taste code and so there were lots of then once you've got that in place you can see all the things that might link up beautifully and um, and then I was researching things and, and TED Talks and things all about poison and up came mm. this talk about sugar and how mm-hmm. you know some people see sugar as a poison because of some of the things it can do to your liver and that was really interesting and then you start following these little um, chains mm. of ideas and theory and thought and um, it doesn't necessarily mean everything gets used but for example, what I learned was that that babies have got many more taste buds than adults and they're mm-hmm. born with more taste buds. And I always thought that the reason they rejected particular tastes is because, you know, their palate isn't as sophisticated as ours. When in mm. fact, the way it's more sophisticated because it's got much... It's you know it's got all these little taste sensors, so they find everything much stronger than we do. Right. So salty for them is really salty, <laughs> and I just thought that was fascinating. So um, yeah, so lots and lots of um, ideas all starting to weave together without me consciously thinking about it, and then and then you look at your piece of paper and you think, oh, those things join up and those mm. things don't and so then I'll just erase the things that just aren't working and you have to be quite brutal if you work without a plot because mm. um, it, it's about letting a plot appear it's about letting what appear? a plot sort of evolve um, in its own oh, way oh right yeah letting You're a plot sort of not, mm. yeah yeah and so if you've got a character that does that does go on these adventures, like climb, it has to climb up the side of a building or does parkour. What kind of level of research do you do on something like that? Oh, quite a do lot, you go and actually. do parkour? Um, <laughs> well, I didn't go that far, and I I should have done really because I I met I met um, I got in touch with somebody. Um, via a friend who was, uh, you know, hardened parkour um, practicer, and she it was great for me because she was a, a woman in her twenties, and she really was passionate about it. And so I sort of interviewed her, 
having watched a lot of it on YouTube, and mm. and so you get a sense of the beauty of it. It's like watching mm. ballet almost. Mm. Um, and then I talked to her about how she felt when she was doing it, and all the theory and um, and feeling behind it because it's quite a meditative thing. It's not just about exercise or right. doing something for the sake of doing it. There is it's about mind and body. And that really interests me interested me because it's it's a it's almost about not taking risk. It's about doing something with and being utterly prepared for it. So it's the absolute opposite of this other thing that's got quite big now of sort of crane hanging and all of those mm. things where you go and do something to scare yourself or challenge yourself <laughs> and parkour is the absolute opposite of that um, and then she introduced me to this guy called Sebastien who was from Paris and he's credited with um, inventing parkour and he and his friend mm. began doing it in the housing estates of um, the of Paris because mm. they didn't have anywhere to play and it was a way mm. of making a world for themselves in this sort of concrete jungle and mm. it was fascinating talking to him so in that way I did quite a lot of research mm. um, because I wanted it to be really convincing and I didn't want a child to read it who practices parkour and thinks well that's just not what it's like Mm. What's yeah. some of the other um, interesting avenues that your research has taken you down? Um, I think things like uh, the gorilla test, which um, I can't remember which book it's in now. I think it must be in Feel the Fear. Um, and I was actually looking up something else, and my sister was helping me do some research because she loves all of that. And we stumbled upon the gorilla test, which is, um, how we get um, blind to things um, going on um, because we, we get distraction, distracted by something else, and so we don't notice something incredibly obvious moving mm. in front in front of our eyes. And I thought that was a really interesting thing, and that was just a, a lucky stumbling upon something that mm. then became the linchpin for the entire book. Um, so. Yeah, sometimes things happen like that. What's next for you? What are you working on now? I'm working on a young fiction, which is going to be very, very illustrated. Young um, as in what, what was, age? Um, young. Oh, I guess, I suppose it just sort of depends on on what, how the reader is, but probably seven to nine will be the okay. core. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's going to be very illustrated, yeah, highly, highly illustrated, black and white, but, um, yeah. What do you need to do to change hats between something like Ruby Redford and Charlie and Lola? Because obviously they're completely different age groups. So what do you need to do to switch gears? Is there anything you, you do? Some people, you know, put on music. Some people get in a different zone. Um, what do you do? Um, I don't know. I'm just interested in in both their worlds, I suppose. So it's just a different thing that I really enjoy. So it doesn't mm. feel, it doesn't really feel like I need to do anything. Really? Uh, it's very easy. I mean, when I first started Ruby, I'd listened to a lot of music and mm. I'd just select music that felt like it would come from Ruby's world. 
Um, but now I don't really need to do any of that. So yeah. it's just very easy to switch. How did you know that music would have come from Ruby's world? I just feel it. Right. Yeah. Okay. And finally, what's your advice for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like you are one day where they can say they have their own best-selling series of books or even just their first book out? Oh, and what what would I suggest they do in order to write? To improve their writing. Um, well, the obvious answer, and and it's a, you know it's it's genuine, is is to read because yeah. by reading you really understand all the different ways of writing, mm-hmm. um, and and don't be trapped into thinking you can't write just because um, you know a particular way you've tried doesn't suit you. Because then there are so many different ways of telling a story and writing a story. And I, 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 I wrote Clara's Bean, which is my first book, by, um, by doing it like I'd always done it as a child, which is to write a comic. And so I started writing and drawing together. And that's the way that um, I, think it, it, I think it just allowed me to become confident as a writer and realize that I could do it. So, um, and that's what picture book can be quite a lot because the writing and the pictures are sort of in equal, you know, they, they're equally important. Mm. So I think that really helped me. But there are so many other ways of writing a story. So I think, I think it's really about understanding that I mean, watching films can also really help too. Mm, mm. Great advice, uh, and you know, okay. good luck with uh, the Thank next you. thing you're, you're working on. We look forward to when it comes out. Thanks so much for your time, Lauren. Okay, pleasure. Thank you. There you go, Lauren Child. That was amazing. I, I love her. I'm a little bit jealous She's that you guys to talk to her because yeah. I think, mind you, it's probably a good thing because I would have been fangirly and that would have been <laughs> awkward for everyone to listen to. But Charlie and Lola has always been such a major, you know, fave in this family. And um, we used to love uh, Soren Lawrenson, the imaginary friend. It's because uh, Lola has an imaginary friend called Soren Lawrenson who comes up regularly. And um, my youngest son, uh, now, you know, 10, had a – an imaginary friend called Alahuhu, and um, and so he used to often discuss that he thought Alahuhu and Soren Lawrence and would get on really well. Oh, how like, cute! I, I know. I oh like, my god! You will. That would be great. Yeah, that's <laughs> you can adorable. Imagine this whole extra world, can't you? Where all the imaginary friends are yes. hanging out, doing their thing. I know it's Ooh, brilliant. That's a great premise. Love it. All right. Now I understand that you are speaking at a writers' festival coming up. Is that right? Um, oh yes. I'm just. Um, I'll just flag it with people in case you're interested. But I'll be at the Writers Unleashed Festival in Sutherland, which is on the 19th of August. It's a Saturday, and I'm going cool. to be doing a one-hour session on you know making time to write, which of course everyone knows is one of my particular favourite subjects. So um, you know, just keep an eye out. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes to the um, website. Uh, for the festival, but it's um, you know, it's it's only in the beginning stages yet, so it's a very early heads up for you if you're interested in coming along and saying hi, and you know, we can discuss making time to write together, which will be awesome. 
I'm sure it'd be great because it's in the Shire and I'm a former Shire girl, so I yes, might even pop down and all the and best things come from the Shire, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, if you can't make it to the Shire on the 19th of August, of course, you can get all of Al's fantastic tips on how to make time to write in her course called How to Make Time to Write. And you just go to writercenter.com.au slash time. Hmm. All right. Let's uh, we're almost at the end of this week's episode. What have you got coming up? Well, I'll be, you know, watching closely as the uh, books um, launch themselves quietly into the US, which is a little bit exciting. And uh, to be honest with you, like it's my first full week at home for quite a few now. So I'm just catching up on stuff. I've, you know, I've got things to do. My desk is an absolute tip because Mm. I haven't even been here to make a tiny little hole in the middle where I usually work. So it's just like Mm. piled high. So Mm. I'm just going to, I'm going to sort myself out and I'm awaiting feedback on the dreaded edit that I, you know, sent off a few weeks ago. So, Mm. you know, we just, we wait, we see, we go, we go forward. And um, of course, I think you might remember we discussed uh, a few episodes ago that, that that June is relatively clear for me. So I'm planning to start uh, writing or rewriting um, and finishing a, um, a a different a middle grade book that I started working on. So um, I'm hoping to really get stuck into actually doing some words, which would be yeah. a little bit unusual for me for the last few months. So I'm looking forward to that. What about you, Val? What will you be doing? Um, I wish I was at home this week, but I'm not because actually I'm going to a few vivid events. Um, Yes. Yes, um, just creative events around the place because I think it's good to fuel your mind with uh, writing-related things but also arty-related things because Mm. they can often, you know, inspire you and give you a fresh perspective on your writing. So I shall be out and about but I, because it's not down by the wharf, I think I'll be able to find food a lot easier. <laughs> Thank heavens for that. <laughs> yes. All right. So where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And feel free to connect with me on Facebook. Just search for Valerie Koo and I'm the one in Sydney. Uh, And in the meantime, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Of course, you can find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. We do. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.